Welcome to Music History Monday for February 21st, 2022. I'm Bob Greenberg, and the title for today's podcast is Courage. If you haven't already, please consider joining me on my subscription site at patreon.com slash Robert Greenberg Music, where I blog, vlog, podcast, pontificate, review, and bloviate four to six times a week. On February 21st, 2012, 10 years ago today, five members of the Russian feminist punk rock group Pussy Riot staged an unauthorized performance on the Soleus of the Cathedral of Christ the Savior in Moscow. For our information, a Soleus is the sanctuary platform in a Russian Orthodox Church. The security personnel at the church were not pleased by this impromptu performance and quickly, within a minute, put an end to it. However, following the dictum that anything worth doing is worth recording, Pussy Riot recorded their performance for posterity. That recording is linked. Why, oh why, would these masked young women so desecrate a Russian Orthodox cathedral? They had, to their minds, good reason. Vladimir Putin was up for re-election, and the head of the Russian Orthodox Church, Patriarch Kirill of Moscow, who was born Vladimir Mikhailovich in 1946, had thrown the church's support behind Putin's re-election. Later that evening of February 21st, 2012, 10 years ago today, Pussy Riot released a music video entitled Punk Prayer, Mother of God, Chase Putin Away. Thanks to the internet, that video circulated internationally overnight. That video is linked as well. From there, things did not go well for certain members of Pussy Riot. We'll get to that in a bit. But first, courage. Writing about singers and musicians, David Ackert editorialized in the Los Angeles Times, quote, Singers and musicians are some of the most driven, courageous people on the face of the earth. They deal with more day-to-day -day rejection in one year than most people do in a lifetime. Every day, they face the financial challenge of living a freelance lifestyle, the disrespect of people who think they should get real jobs, and their own fear that they'll never work again. Every day, they have to ignore the possibility that the vision they have dedicated their lives to is a pipe dream. With every note, they stretch themselves emotionally and physically, risking criticism and judgment. With every passing year, many of them watch as the other people their age achieve the predictable milestones of normal life, the car, the family, the house, the nest egg. Why? Because musicians and singers are willing to give their entire lives to a moment, to that melody, that lyric, that chord, or that interpretation that will stir the audience's soul. Singers and musicians are beings who have tasted life's nectar in that crystal moment 
when they poured out their creative spirit and touched another's heart. In that instant, they were as close to magic, God, and perfection as anyone could ever be. And in their own hearts, they know that to dedicate oneself to that moment is worth a thousand lifetimes." Unquote. Time Out While I thoroughly appreciate Mr. Ackert's sentiment, I do, I really do. He has rendered that sentiment so ridiculous through overstatement that his final three sentences could easily win a dishonorable mention in the Bulwer-Lytton writing contest for the worst conclusion to an expository paragraph. Yes, all people in the arts, singers, musicians, composers, writers, poets, playwrights, painters, sculptors, and actors, require a certain degree of courage. But that courage can just as easily be explained as a serious personality disorder. Fantasy-prone egotism tending towards idiocy born of misplaced hope. Pardon me that statement, but there's nothing particularly special about self-employed artists accepting a common penchant for poverty and a pathological inability to work for anyone but themselves. You want courage? Here's courage. Emergency room nurses and pediatric oncologists, policemen, women, and EMTs, middle school teachers, and special forces soldiers, as if they are even different professions. Courageous musicians? For the purposes of this post, let us define courage, not as the ability to face the career issues and disappointments inherent to the profession, but rather the willingness to put oneself in harm's way during the practice of that profession. By harm's way, I'm not referring to the potential economic risk caused by withdrawing one's music from Spotify in protest, noble an act though that may be. By harm's way, I'm not referring to the awful process of audition and the pain of rejection that follows much more often than not. I'm not even referring to the courage it takes to mount performances that draw hoots, hisses, and thrown cabbages from the audience, like so many performances of Arnold Schoenberg's music at the turn of the 20th century in Vienna, for example. No, I'm talking about true physical courage, about practicing one's musical profession in the face of violence. For example, the conductor Arturo Toscanini's outright refusal to play the fascist national anthem before performances in Italy in the 1930s, for which he was spat on and assaulted, vilified in the fascist press, threatened, spied on by the government, and ultimately forbidden to leave the country, which, thanks to international pressure, he managed to do anyway. True courage? How about the musicians on board the RMS Titanic? There were eight of them, divided into two bands, a trio and a quintet. Those ensembles played continuously during the Titanic sinking in their attempt to calm the passengers. Not a one 
of these musicians survived. All went down with the ship. Of those eight musicians, only three bodies were recovered. Those of John Frederick Preston Clark, who was 28 years old, Wallace Hartley, 33 years old, and John Law Hume, 21 years old. That's courage. Then there were the many musicians who perished in Nazi labor and death camps, who continued to perform and in doing so, assert their humanity in the face of unthinkable brutality and dehumanization until the terrible and inevitable end. Finally, for now, there were the innumerable, mostly black American musicians who were the victims of Jim Crow discrimination, verbal and often harrowing physical abuse in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s. During these decades, black singers and musicians were on the front lines of desegregation. In the 1940s and into the 1950s, all black bands often played before strictly segregated audiences, particularly in the American South. In a concert in Birmingham, Alabama in the late 1950s, the all-black doo-wop group, the Flamingos, who are today members of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, were met by 50 policemen holding rifles and billy clubs. The six members of the band were informed that they were only to make eye contact with the black audience in the balcony and not the whites seated on the floor. Band member Terry Johnson remembered, quote, The cops were up there making sure we did not look at any white person. It was a rule when we came in. I don't want to see any of you darkies looking at the white women out there. If you do, your ass is mine. Cruel things like that, unquote. Beatings by police and white supremacists at concerts were routine, particularly in the mid-1950s with the advent of rock and roll. I would, and I have, argue that beginning in the mid-1950s, rock and roll created the preconditions for both desegregation and the civil rights movement as they emerged in the 1960s. That's because, writes Steve Knopper in Rolling Stones magazine, quote, in the era of Elvis, Chuck Berry, and Little Richard, a curious thing started to happen. Rock and roll shows became so boisterously biracial that it was sometimes impossible for officials to fully segregate them. Some recall the cops simply throwing up their hands, says the coaster's Leon Hughes Sr., quote, a lot of places had the color line when we first walked in, and after we started playing, they let them cross the line. It was beautiful, unquote. But it was dangerous, and for musicians in that position, the situation required courage. Back to Pussy Riot. Pussy Riot is, in fact, a political action collective formed in 2011, consisting at any given time of about 12 women performers and 15 techies who record and edit the performances and post them on the internet. The performers maintain their anonymity by assuming aliases, 
and by wearing brightly covered balaclavas, ski masks. Now, in the written version of this podcast, I've been putting the word performer in quotations because Pussy Riot's concerts, also in quotations, are actually flash protests that rarely last more than a couple of minutes. Whatever music may or may not occur during a Pussy Riot protest slash performance is incidental. In an interview with the newspaper Moscow News, a Pussy Riot member with the alias Garadja said that the group was always looking for recruits. Quote, you don't have to sing very well. It's punk. You just scream a lot. Unquote. According to Pussy Riot, co-founder Nadezhda Andreevna Tolokonokova, born 1989, Nadezhda Tolokonokova is her real name. Her nom de guerre is Nadja Tolokno, quote, Pussy Riot's performances can either be called dissident art or political action that engages art forms. Either way, our performances are a kind of civic activity amidst the repressions of a corporate political system that directs its power against basic human rights and civil and political liberties." Unquote. The various political views of Pussy Riot's membership range from the liberal left to anarchists. What the membership has in common is, quote, feminism, anti-authoritarianism, and opposition to Putin, who the members regard as continuing the aggressive imperial politics of the Soviet Union, unquote. And for our information, the name of the group is indeed the two English language words, Pussy Riot, written in the Latin alphabet. So much for anonymity. Alas, anonymity created by balaclavas and pseudonyms will only go so far. On March 3rd, 2012, 10 days after the guerrilla protest at the Cathedral of Christ the Savior in Moscow, two of Pussy Riot's members that took part in the protest, Nadezhda Tolokonokova and Maria Alyarkima, were arrested and charged with hooliganism an all-purpose catch-all charge for prosecuting unsavory behavior. On March 16th, a third member of Pussy Riot named Yekaterina Samutsevich was arrested as well. Two other members who participated at the Christ the Savior protest fled the country and thus avoided arrest and prosecution. The three arrestees were denied bail. On June 4, 2012, formal charges were filed against the three. The indictment ran to over 2,800 pages. The trial was held in Moscow's Kamovniki District Court. It began on July 30, 2012. The women were charged with, quote, premeditated hooliganism performed by an organized group of people motivated by religious hatred or hostility. Unquote. The women, who faced up to seven years in prison, all pleaded not guilty. During the course of the trial, 
the three were accused of sacrilegiously singing the words, holy shit, in the church. To this charge, Nadezhda Tolokonokova testified, quote, we sang the refrain, holy shit. I am sorry if I offended anyone with this. It is an idiomatic expression related to the previous verse about the fusion of Moscow patriarchy and the government. Holy shit is our evaluation of the situation in the country. This opinion is not blasphemy." Unquote. Yeah, we would agree, though the judges did not. On August 17, 2012, all three women were convicted of hooliganism motivated by religious hatred and sentenced to two years in prison. The presiding judge declared that the defendants had, quote, crudely undermined the social order and demonstrated a complete lack of respect, unquote, for the Orthodox Church. The lawyer for the three women, Mark Fagan, declared that they would appeal, although, quote, under no circumstances will the girls ask for a pardon from Putin. They will not beg and humiliate themselves before such a bastard, unquote. Nadezhda Tolokonokova stated that, quote, our imprisonment serves as a clear and unambiguous sign that freedom is being taken away from the entire country, unquote. According to Vladimir Putin, Pussy Riot had, quote, undermined the moral foundation of the country and got what they asked for, unquote. <laughs> really, Vlad, really? And here, we thought they were objecting to you being an authoritarian jerk. Yekaterina Samutsevich, who was pregnant, was freed on appeal on October 10th, 2012. Nadezhda Tolokonokova and Maria Alyokina were not released and were not freed until December 23, 2013, after having served 21 months. On their release, the two issued a joint statement. Quote, when we were jailed, Pussy Riot immediately became very popular and widely known and it turned from just a group to essentially an international movement. Anybody can be Pussy Riot. You just need to put on a mask and stage an active protest of something in your particular country, wherever that may be, that you consider unjust. And we're not here as the leaders of Pussy Riot or determining what Pussy Riot is and what it does or what it says. We are just two individuals that spent two years in jail for taking part in a pussy riot protest action, unquote. And that, my friends, is courage. Thank you. To sample and download one or all of my many courses on subjects musical produced by The Great Courses slash The Teaching Company, please visit my website at robertgreenbergmusic.com.